0: Hello, I'm Paco Alvarez, and this is the backstory from Type Investigations, where we sit down with one of our reporters and ask them to take us behind the scenes of their work. Today, I'm speaking to reporter Jaya Lee about her article, This Rap Song Helped Sentence a 17-Year-Old to Prison for Life, produced in partnership with The New York Times, where Jaya is a contributing writer for the magazine. For her investigation, Jaya spent more than two years compiling and analyzing information on hundreds of criminal cases where rap lyrics were used as evidence against defendants, and dove into the case of Tommy Kennedy, a young man convicted of murder after prosecutors presented his rap lyrics as a confession. In this conversation, we discuss why she felt it was important to use a data-driven approach for her investigation, why she focused on Kennedy's case, and the challenges of having an incarcerated source. So my first question is, uh, what inspired your investigation?
1: It was actually somewhat random. I was looking for story ideas. This was now maybe four years ago. And I just opened up courthousenews.com and was reading through. I write pretty typically about criminal justice issues. And so I was just kind of opened up the page with an open mind. I wasn't looking for anything in particular. I saw a news story about rap lyrics that had been used in a number of trials. It was sort of a trend story. And the, just the idea of it struck me as odd and fascinating. And I wanted to know more about how that even worked and what it sort of opened up for me personally, as someone who's thinking a lot about the legal system and how various people seek justice uh, within it was this, you know, this aspect of it that's very important, you know, evidence. How it works, that there are rules that guide this, this whole universe of sources really that tell their own stories that help, whether it's a prosecutor or defense, um, determine or rather indicate someone's guilt or innocence. And the stakes just felt so high, and the fact that rap lyrics were coming up often enough to warrant news coverage, you know oftentimes you would see local news reporting about rap lyrics that were used because they're so inflammatory, they tended to get attention when they came up at a trial. Um and I was, you know, it got me curious about what the broader universe looked like. what What did this really mean? What were we what were we essentially implying? What kinds of messages are we sending to juries when we use this type of material as evidence? Yeah, so that's that's sort of how I got introduced to it. And it, it would be a long while <laughs> until I really knew what the thrust of the story would be.
0: Part of your findings come from a database you helped build, of court cases where rap lyrics were used as evidence. Why was it important to you to approach the story in this way?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So by the time I started digging around in this topic, it was twenty, late 2018, 2019. And by that point, there had been a fair amount of reporting done around this topic. Um, there were two or three sort of strains of that coverage. One was what I just mentioned, um, There had been reporting done at the local level, sort of um, developments on a particular court case. Oftentimes it was a a homicide or potentially like a a larger scale um, drug-related case. And there was that. And then there was sort of the, like another set of op-eds that had been written by scholars and experts um, who had been very critical of rap lyrics, um, being used as evidence. And I, what I wanted to understand was what were the patterns? How widespread was this practice? It was a little bit hard to tell based on the existing coverage. Um, and among the people who had been writing about this topic often were a few who had clearly been following it for a long time. And there were two scholars who I ended up later would partner with um, who had been Uh, working on a book and had, you know, as I spoke to them, I learned that they had been compiling a list of defendants as they came across them in their research and that the list they had compiled had grown into the hundreds. So, you know, I had some background, I have some background as uh, a data reporter and the data reporter in my brain was sort of like, ding, ding, like we need to, like, can we learn more about those 500 names and what what would they show us? And that sort of marked the beginning of a very long and winding journey in trying to track down um, court documents for as many names as we could. And we ended up getting uh, about 200 in total that I ended up analyzing and writing about in the story that that has resulted. What we found through the database I think in many ways reinforced what we already knew anecdotally about rap on trial um, that, you know, the majority of defendants who are being tried in these cases um, and often found guilty, they are black or Brown, that the manner in which rap music or lyrics get used is often brought in because there's a purported uh, relevant, reason. Um, there's something about the lyrics or music that supposedly ties the defendant to the crime in question. But oftentimes what happens when the evidence is admitted and then later presented is that the the, the message to the jury is oftentimes related to the defendant's character, whether that's explicit or implicit, the sort of to varying degrees spoken or unspoken indication to the jury is that this defendant, even, you know, regardless of whether or not there are facts or physical evidence or eyewitnesses tying them to the crime in question, that this is a type of person who could have committed this crime, would have was more likely to commit this crime. And there is a gray area there of whether or not, you know, is the defendant actually guilty or innocent oftentimes, but but what we saw was time and time again, and I think the cases that we really dug into you know, even just the the 200 that we were able to track down out of the 500 that Andrea Dennis and Eric Nielsen had uh, compiled over the years, we we found they existed, those cases existed in um, more than, I think it's around 32 states. And so this is a very widespread phenomenon. And I think it's, you know, to be able to say that and to put a number, put some um, to show some data-driven findings gives the issue a further boost. I hope that <laughs> that's certainly my hope as the journalist um, that perhaps, you know, provides whether it's scholars or attorneys um, or whoever it is looking into this issue in the future, some uh, some firmer grounds to, to base their arguments in.
0: You mentioned this now and then also uh, in your article, but um, it's obvious that there's like a racialized nature to this type of evidence because it's mostly, it's primarily rap lyrics that are used as opposed to lyrics from other genres. Um, Did you find any Mm -hmm. cases where other forms of art were used as evidence?
1: I did the classic or typical example of the type of criminal case you might see um, that involves music that isn't rap, for example, like heavy metal or I think heavy metal is is probably the the second most common that I was able to find, you know, and even then they're just a handful compared to hundreds and hundreds of examples we found when searching for rap lyrics. The difference is that when it comes to, you know, something like heavy metal music or rock, it's mostly about sort of what did this particular song influence the defendant to behave or to commit the crime that they committed. I did find some non-music examples that were somewhat similar, that there were a handful of cases. And really, I mean a handful, like I was able to find a, about five cases in my search. And granted, there, there, there are probably more, but it, there's there was such a clear contrast between the handful of non-rap cases versus rap cases. Um, There there were a number around five or so cases I found that were not even music related, but more so had to do with another piece of writing like um, fiction or a novella that uh, the defendant had allegedly written before and oftentimes they were tied to maybe like a, a threats case um, someone threatening to assault or um, attack a school. I think one case had to do with a a threat involving a potential school shooting that never happened. So there were a number of exceptions examples that I was able to find that did not involve rap. however there the what sets rap apart, um, based on our review is that when it comes to rap lyrics cases we're often talking about taking the the lyrics or or a music video and interpreting the lyrics themselves quite literally to point to it and say this is proof of a confession or proof of a motive or proof that These two or three or four um, defendants, -defendants, co-defendants, were all involved in a gang and committed committed this crime for gang-related reasons. It's that literal interpretation that I think is particularly unique to RAP.
0: Your article deals specifically with the case of Tommy Kennedy, who was found guilty of murder after prosecutors used one of his songs as evidence in court. What drew you to his case in particular?
1: Yeah, there were so many cases that were uh, worth focusing on. One of the things that I think set Tommy Kennedy's case apart was how young he was when he was convicted. He was He was, I believe he had just turned 15 at the time he was arrested, and by the time he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 50 years. He it, I, it was a month before he turned 18, so he was 17, um, so very young. And oftentimes in these cases, what we found is that rap lyrics or otherwise plays, you know, it, it is not the only piece of evidence that's presented um, or pursued. And that was true in Tommy Kennedy's case. Um, but there was such a heavy focus on rap lyrics in the case that it allowed us to then really kind of dissect the various ways in which lyrics get introduced. So, in Tommy Kennedy's case, a song, a rap song that he had uploaded onto SoundCloud became the uh, the first sort of major lead that led to his own led to his arrest. It was. Um, It was actually discovered, the song was sort of passed on to the police from the victim's family, Samara McLean's family, um, who rightfully, you know, justifiably were desperate for answers and in need of understanding who had um, done this, you know, done this very brutal, awful thing, and taking away the life of their um, their loved one, um, sent the song to the police saying that they believed that they heard the name of their son, Samar. And this this became the sort of primary thing that, in the minds of the police and prosecutors, linked Tommy to this crime. Later, it would be discovered through Tommy's own um, appealing his conviction that his argument throughout his trial and throughout his appeal has been that he did not say the victim's name and that an isolated vocal track would demonstrate um, what he meant. The prosecutors at trial would argue that the song essentially showed that he was confessing, Tommy Kennedy was confessing to the murder. They also presented written lyrics, um, lyrics that Tommy had written while in jail awaiting trial. And the sort of collective... Portrait that these the rap lyrics and the song um, painted in as the as the prosecutors would argue was that um, you know not only was this someone who was uh, cold hearted enough to commit a murder but then was the type of person to then brag about it in a song um, and that was sort of the the kind of one of the central messages relayed to the jury most of the other evidence against um, that was presented against Tommy Kennedy was quite circumstantial. Um, And the question that I asked throughout the story is, is sort of whether or not, you know, without rap lyrics, would the jury still have found him guilty? Um, And that sort of, you know, that sort of question, I think, in so many of these cases is, um, it is, it is hard to kind of pick apart one one piece of evidence and say this is you know this was clearly indicative of guilt or in, innocence you know in the vast majority of cases um you're you're often you know more in this gray area and and you know it, it all comes down to that central standard of beyond a reasonable uh doubt and and that's that's the question that we're asking here and that we're raising for um for all of the cases that that we reviewed.
0: And how did you initially connect with Tommy? Uh, What are some of the challenges of reporting on a story in which a primary source is incarcerated?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is true for probably every, every aspect of reporting the story Um, and the uh, communicating with Tommy was very exemplary of this dynamic, which is just that like everything takes time. You know, it was, it was easy enough to find out where Tommy Kennedy was incarcerated. Um, and fortunately, you know, he is, in, he is currently incarcerated in uh, Wisconsin state prison and the Wisconsin state prison system allows uh, member, you know, anyone to send a letter to someone who is incarcerated in their system through email essentially. Uh, and, uh, so I was able to, Email him. I also um, sent him a letter by mail and hoped that one of them would reach him. Um, of course, I wasn't sure if if it would at first. And so, mostly we had we began through email, and we've mostly corresponded over email, and um, along with some phone calls as well as handwritten letters. You know, it's I think I've reported on um, and with enough people by now um, in my career uh, with people who have been incarcerated to know that when I don't hear back for weeks at a time, which is actually quite typical, not to panic. Um, And that oftentimes there are, it's just the the access is just difficult. And that's not, you know, putting aside the reporter's uh, ability to communicate with someone who's on the inside, but you know, this is most true for so- someone on the inside who doesn't always know when they'll get access to a phone or access to a tablet or computer to reach the outside world. I mean, I, I will say COVID slowed things down, especially because that there had been a number of quarantines, um, either because Tommy himself had been transported to county jail and back um, to uh, for a hearing in his appeal, or because someone in the prison had tested positive and they had to isolate everyone. Tommy ended up testing positive at one point and had to be isolated for several weeks. Um, and yeah, it's just important to um, understand how life inside prison works and how, you know, the daily rhythms that, that we experience on the outside look very different. So just kind of adjusting to that, um, to so that pace, I think can be a challenge.
0: You can read this rap song help sends the 17 year old to prison for life at the New York times or the type investigations website. Check our show notes for a link to the article. A transcript of this backstory is available at typeinvestigationsorg backstory.